Life is living just because life, wow, life is worth the living. I'm off to a good start. Just because he lives. We're going we're gonna to dive a little bit deeper into that this morning, and I think it's pretty cool. I didn't ask Caleb and the praise team to sing any specific songs, but that's a pretty good one, and I like the way that it applies to the scripture we're going to read this morning. But to start things off, as we should any time that we dive into the Word, um, let's prepare our hearts through confession. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and fill us with the righteousness of Christ and just prepare our hearts and our minds to, to receive the Word this morning. So we're going to look at a verse in Psalm 51, verse 7. I'll read this verse. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now the word purge there means to purify by removing a stain. So think about, you know, if you have a stain on your clothes. And hyssop is a plant. I just learned this a few weeks ago, and I think this is really cool. Hyssop is a plant that priests would dip in the blood of a sacrificial animal and sprinkle it on the person that needed to be cleansed. This is obviously an Old Testament thing. We don't do this still today. But we have a sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, by whose blood we can be cleansed. So let's pray this morning. We're going to spend a few moments in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us together and just ask, ask Him to cleanse you, ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse you. Let's pray. Father God, we are gathered in your presence this morning. We are gathered in your house. And that is a a blessing far beyond what any of us could ever deserve. I thank you for the opportunity to get to be here and read from your word this morning. And I pray that you will speak to us through your word. I pray that you will cleanse us, and if there is anyone in this room who does not know the cleansing and healing power of Jesus Christ and His blood, please don't let them leave here today without making that decision and taking that step in faith. I pray that you will speak through me. Father, I confess that I'm nervous about bringing your word this morning, but I'm also excited. I'm thrilled because of what your word tells us. And I pray that you will give me the words to speak and give everyone the ears to hear what it is that you want to be said this morning. We pray these things and believe in the name of that sacrificial lamb, your son Jesus. Amen. So, yes, I'm nervous, um, <laughs> but it is, a, it is a huge blessing to get to be here and bring the word once again. I'm, I'm very excited about what God has to tell us through his word this morning. So, I'm just going to start things off with the title of my sermon. There's a, there's a reason that I want to start right off the bat with this, but... It's called the freedom in suffering. And I want you to notice a a specific nuance there that we're going to keep in mind throughout the time that we have together this morning. And it's that little two letter word in there in suffering, not from suffering. See, that might not seem like that big of a difference to you when you first read that phrase, but 
a quick Google search of the phrase, the freedom in suffering, will yield mostly results talking about freedom from suffering. Pretty much the first page is all from sources talking about how you can be free from the sufferings of this life. And the shocking thing is, not all of those sources are secular. I would say about half of them that I've seen are from Christian sources talking about the freedom from suffering. And you might be thinking right now, you know, Vincent, why are you talking about why are you talking about suffering like that? Why are you talking about like we we shouldn't suffer, right? The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus never taught that we should be free from suffering. But we live in a modern world where our culture is geared toward freedom from suffering. Our our world, our society lives to avoid suffering at all costs. Everything we do, everything we say and build our lives around is all meant to just make us feel as happy and comfortable as possible. So I would venture to say that you're, you're probably recognizing that this isn't going to be the most joyful of messages this morning, but as we continue in First Peter, this is the scripture that we have to read. This is the scripture that we are presented with, and we must dive into the truth of what the Word of God tells us. So, like I said, we live in that culture of avoiding suffering, but again, it's not just the secular world that seeks to avoid suffering. We as Christians are just as guilty of avoiding any kind of bad circumstances at, at any cost that we can pursue. Anything we can do to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous. There are countless prosperity theologians and pastors and churches and I won't go into naming names, that's, that's a whole different discussion this morning, but just because someone calls himself a pastor or a group of people call themselves a church doesn't mean that they are preaching the truth of the Word of God. And the truth of the Word, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, is that we will suffer especially as Christians, we will suffer. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us hanging. Because while we are supposed to suffer, if you can sit here and claim the name of Christian this morning, suffering should be a cause for joy. That might not make sense right off the bat, but I hope that we can come to understand that this morning. So if you don't mind standing with me one more time, we're going to check out this second half of First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. There it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, 
what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father God, we again come to you humbly this morning. We've, we've read this chunk of text out of your word and it might not make sense to us the first time we read through it. But I pray that as we continue to, to dive into your word together, I pray that you will soften our hearts. I pray that you will help us understand and I pray that your word will pierce our hearts. Let it be a mirror to us of our wrongs and how we can better live like you and like your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things and believe. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple of days ago, I was sitting with my fiance Alyssa in the Fringe Coffee House on the east side of Hamilton. If you guys aren't familiar with it, I'm not standing up here trying to make a paid advertisement or something like that. It's just a cool place. Um, they've got good food, they've got good coffee, but the thing that really stands out to me about that place is the culture. And if you've never been there before, the first time you step foot in that building, it might seem a little abrasive. It's, it's not what we're used to. It's not the typical churchy environment. And I think it has its flaws, just like, just like any business, any group of people does. But the true meaning behind what they do there is, is really special. So essentially what it is is a re-entry program. Everyone that is employed by that coffee shop is an ex-convict. So they've been imprisoned, and their job and other ministries that they are a part of through the fringe help them to reacclimate themselves to living in the normal world. So as I'm sitting there with Alyssa, just drinking coffee, looking through my sermon notes, I couldn't help but think about the relationship between the suffering of being incarcerated, the suffering that those people go through, have gone through, and the suffering that Peter talks about here in chapter 4 that we've read this morning. And I got to sit down actually and talk to Patrick. He is the lead pastor of the Fringe Church in downtown Hamilton. And the church operates the coffee house. They are very much the same ministry. But Patrick has obviously a lot of experience with criminals, with people who have been in prison. They do ministry in the Lebanon Correctional Facility and up in Dayton. And throughout all the time that he has spent with them, ministering to people who are imprisoned, I think it's fair to say that he's learned a lot about what life is like on that side of the bars. And so, one of the things that he said to me while we were sitting there really, really struck me, hit me like a ton of bricks. And I wanted to share it with you this morning. I want you to chew on this, soak it in for a minute. But he said, in all of his experience, it seems like people in prison are more free when they are behind bars and they know Jesus than people who live in the free world without him. You can be in prison, stripped seemingly of all of your freedoms. And if you only have Jesus, that's all you need. You can be so much better off with just Him than living in the normal world, living a normal life without Him. 
for Christians today, that should be inspiring, but especially if you're here in this room or if you're watching online this morning and you don't know him, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, that should light a fire under you. Living this comfortable life that we have in the normal world without Jesus, the pain and suffering that we experience, there's no joy in it. There's no cause for rejoicing. But if you have Him and Him alone, it doesn't matter if you have nothing else. I'm reminded of the story of Job. You might be familiar with his story, but God allowed him to be stripped of all of his possessions. Job was a wealthy man. He had slaves, he had livestock, he had a healthy family, he had a ton of money and influence. And God allowed him to be stripped of all of his possessions and what he held dear. And in the depths of his pain and suffering, what did Job do? Let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's first inclination was to, was to worship. This guy, was, this guy was powerful. This guy had tons of money and influence. He had everything going right for him. And then he had it all taken away. And what did he do? He had one piece of clothing left. He had a robe. He had some hair on his head. And he shaved his head. He tore his robe. He fell on the ground. And he said nothing Literally having nothing isn't going to get in the way of my worship of my God. I'm reminded of the story of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Again, another story you might be familiar with. Paul wrote four books of the New Testament while he was in prison. He wrote several other books, but four of them specifically while he was imprisoned by the Romans. And he was praising God. He was, he was thankful and rejoicing throughout all of it. And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, let me turn there real quick. It should be on the screen as well. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's a verse that we take out of context a lot, say, well, I can do anything if I've got Jesus. But what Paul is talking about here as he sits in prison, as he sits behind bars, is that it, it doesn't matter if he's traveling the world preaching the gospel to people or if he's writing letters to churches in a jail cell. He has learned through those experiences that the only thing he needs is Jesus. And I'm reminded of the story of Adam and Eve. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably know this one. In the garden, before the fall, what does it say about Adam and Eve? Their, their character, their state of being. They were naked and were not ashamed. They didn't need clothes. They didn't need material possessions. There was nothing to get between them and God. They didn't have the newest Jordans or Spotify Premium or an air fryer. 
They just had God and His creation. And it was only until the serpent convinced them that they could be better off and they could be more like God if they disobeyed Him did something get in between them and God, and that was sin, rebellion. And as God cast them out of the garden, He gave them clothing made from animal skins. And that clothing covers our sin, but it also represents still, even today, the barrier that sin creates between us and God. If you're taking notes this morning, or even if you're not, scribble this one down on the back of your bulletin or in the margins of your Bible. I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon, and hopefully that makes it look like I know what I'm doing up here. He says, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Not prosperity, not happiness, not money, not an air fryer. Affliction is the best bit of furniture. It's the best book. I don't know if I could say it any better. Obviously, I can't because everybody knows Spurgeon's name, and I think you guys know my name, and that's it. But as we look back through 1 Peter chapter 4 today, and as we celebrate the freedom of our country, the United States of America today, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the title of the sermon today. It's not, it's not just a title just to call it something. It's, it's a title so that you might learn from that phrase. Take it home, put it in the back of your mind, and marinate on it for a while the freedom in suffering. Jesus never taught freedom from suffering. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christians should live a life that is free from suffering. So why do we try to live like we don't suffer? Let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to help us get a better frame of reference on this. There it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, I'm a firm believer that every single word in the Bible is meaningful and in the place that it should be. And that applies to the very first word here, Beloved the first word of chapter, or excuse me, verse 12. The Greek word there is, and I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but agapetoi. And if you're listening carefully, you might recognize the root of that word, which is agape, one of the four Greek words for love. And it is the greatest kind of love. There's brotherly love, there's intimate love, but agape love is the love between God and his creation. The sacrificial love of laying down your life for someone that you hold dear. If you aren't a Christian, then Peter isn't, Peter isn't talking to you right here. That might sound harsh at first, but that word beloved is referring to us as Christians. If you, if you aren't a Christian, then you don't have that sacrificial love of God on you. You haven't received it yet. That's not to say that you can't. It's as simple as receiving it, friends. It's, it's a gift. You don't have to work for it. 
Peter tells us as Christians not to be surprised about our sufferings. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That phrase, fiery trial, literally refers to the process of refining gold. If you know how that works, I think it's kind of a common sermon illustration, but gold is heated up until it is liquefied, incredibly intense temperatures, and all of the imperfections rise to the top of the vat, and they are skimmed off, and that process is repeated over and over and over again. And we as Christians are supposed to follow that same example. We, it, it's not even really up to us. We're going to follow that example. If, if you claim the name of Christian, you're going to go through those trials. You're going to go through those sufferings. And it's God heating you up. It's God allowing you to be tested so that those imperfections in your life can be skimmed off the top and he can make you more like him, a more perfect version of of his image. We're not just supposed to live as as we're as we're talking about suffering this morning, we're we're not supposed to just hang our head in shame and misery. We're not supposed to live in pain. We are promised suffering as Christians. But there is freedom in that suffering. Let's look down at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 4. There it says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're not a part of the family of Christ this morning, I'm going to be honest, you, you can't share in his sufferings. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, why would I want to share in anybody else's sufferings but my own, you know? I've got it hard enough as it is. Yes, you will probably have an easier life. But that's all you'll have. You'll have this life. To suffer for the consequences of your sin in this life. And nothing to hope for afterward. If you're a part of Christ's family, look at the second half of verse 13. You may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We are waiting on a returning Savior. We have every cause to be joyful, no matter what happens in this life. Let's look at some other examples in Scripture. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 5 through 7. There it says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what about Romans 5, verses 3 through 5? You don't have to read all of these, write them down, but there it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The good news is, if you have accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ this morning, you have that Holy Spirit dwelling within you, just like, just like Paul writes 
in Romans 5. And as Peter says in verse 14, you have the Spirit of God upon you. He says there, if I can turn to it again real quick. He says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So, another Greek word for you this morning. You don't have to keep track of all of these. The Greek word for blessed is makarioi. Probably screwed that one up too. But it's the same word that Jesus repeats time and time again in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. If you're familiar with that area of Scripture, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the first quarter or so of Matthew chapter 5 is called the Beatitudes. So we'll run through these real quick on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And I don't think we have this one on the screen, but verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the bad news here is, if you haven't received and accepted that Holy Spirit, then none of what I just read applies to you. Look back at Second Corinthians chapter 1. For as we don't share in Christ's sufferings, we don't share in any comfort. You could read it like that if you don't know the Holy Spirit. Look at James chapter 1. Count it all despair, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you don't have any faith. You are incomplete, lacking in everything. And look at Romans chapter 5. We despair in sufferings. Suffering produces weakness. Weakness produces ignorance. Ignorance produces hopelessness. And hopelessness puts us to shame because we don't have the love of God being poured into us through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that depressing? If you're sitting here as a Christian, that should light a fire under you because there are people out there who could read those verses and it could be their senior quote. It could be their epitaph. It could be their bio on Facebook, whatever you want to call it, but there are countless individuals out there and in here this morning. Yes, there's people sitting in the pew next to you that don't know Jesus. And they could read those verses in the backwards version that I just put them to, and it would be true for them. So I want to I want to pause here for a distinction because I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to single anybody out, okay? This isn't middle school basketball tryouts and you're the only guy who didn't make the team. But if you're, if you're getting mad at me, if you're sitting here getting mad at me or if you're watching online saying that I don't, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, I, I don't... I don't care if you don't believe. You don't mean anything to me. 
That's not me. That's not me that's saying that. The enemy is putting lies in your head, number one, and the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart, friend. The Spirit of the Word of God is piercing to your heart, to the division of your soul and spirit. It knows your thoughts. It knows your intentions. And on the subject of intentions, let's look back at our text in 1 Peter chapter 4 and check out verses 15 and 16. There it says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So obviously, murder, theft, evil, and meddling are evil, right? Duh. If you, if you don't already know that, we need to do some backtracking this morning. But I think what Peter is talking about here isn't necessarily the act of committing those sins. Like I said, obviously, you know, we shouldn't murder, but I don't think he's talking about committing an act and being imprisoned for it or receiving the physical, real-world consequences for it. I think what Peter is talking about here is, well... If we look at the Greek word again, when it says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, that phrase, let none of you suffer, in the original language is referring to emotions. It's referring to thoughts. It's referring to the affections of committing those acts. So what that means is you don't have to literally murder someone or steal something or be meddling in someone else's life, but if you have the desire in your heart and your mind to do that, you are just as guilty as if you had just gone and done it anyway. And I am not telling you to just go and do it anyway for the sake of doing it. Because if we look back at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a little bit about this shortly after the Beatitudes. In verses 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then a little bit further down, verses 27 and 28, he says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me paint a picture for you. So let's imagine that we're all back in high school. We're walking down the hallway in between classes. It's busy. There's a bunch of kids hanging out at their lockers in their, in their groups. But you are one of those people that likes to just keep to themselves. That was me. I didn't really talk to anybody walking down the hallway. I just minded my own business, tried to get to the next class as quick as possible. As you're walking down the hallway, you see somebody standing alone at their locker, and it's it's somebody that you've had a crush on for a while. I'm sure you all probably know what, that, what that's like. You see him standing there and your mind begins to wander and you begin to think some things that you shouldn't be thinking about that person. You don't actually do anything. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that just the act of thinking, having those lustful thoughts about someone, you're, you're just as sinful as if you had gone and done it. So you don't act on it. You don't, you don't do anything. You keep walking. But then you see the person that they're, 
that they're hanging out with and you don't, you don't like them at all. They bump into you. You don't know whether it's intentional or not, but you drop your books on the floor. And as you're kneeling down to pick up your books off the floor, people are making fun of you. People are pointing and laughing and you're just stewing in anger. And you think about and you desire in your heart to get up and plant a big old knuckle sandwich on that guy's face. You don't do it. But the act, excuse me, the, the intent, the desire to do that is equal to the act. Jesus says, I'm not making this up. The King of kings and the Lord of lords said this. The act, the intent, that's enough. Now let's look back at 1 Peter 4, 15. It says that we are not to suffer as those whose thoughts and intentions are contrary to the word of God. Don't follow the passions of your flesh because there is only shame in suffering for your flesh. But what does he say in verse 16? If you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer for the cause of the gospel and the truth of the word of God, you have no cause for shame. You can rejoice and glorify God in that name of Christian. It's interesting because the name Christian was originally a derogatory term. Being called little Christ was demeaning and patronizing. It wasn't something that you'd go walking around and saying, I'm a Christian, and you wouldn't have bumper stickers that said it. It wasn't something that you wanted to be called. But Peter says that we should rejoice in that name. If we are persecuted and if we suffer for being called a Christian, we have cause for joy because of the name of Jesus Christ. Think about this, going, going back to the example of incarceration. When I was talking to Patrick, one of the other things that he told me is that he knows of several instances, and it sounds like this is a pretty common thing, where people who have been in prison will serve their time, they'll get out, and then they will intentionally commit another crime so that they can go back because their home life, their life in the normal world, outside those bars, is worse than being in there. That should break your heart. People would rather live for their flesh. We would rather live for our flesh, commit crimes, and live in the absence of freedom than suffer for Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to get angry with each other? Are we supposed to get angry with God? If he is a loving and forgiving God, why does he allow so much suffering in this world, right? I'm sure we've all asked that question at some point in our lives. Let's look as we wrap up at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. It says there, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Everybody say, it's time. Time, in the original Greek, is the word kairos in this translation. Everybody say that, kairos. Everybody say chronos. These are the two Greek words for time. Chronos is quantitative. When you look at your watch and you say, what time is it? That's chronos. When you, yes, I'm sorry. Got confused there for a second. Kairos is a specific 
appointed time for an event to occur. What is that event in this verse? Everybody say judgment. All right, I'll stop asking you to talk now. So we hear a lot in our social circles, Christian and non-Christian, about judgment. We hear the common phrase, judge not lest ye be judged yourself, right? That is a piece of scripture that is taken out of context and terribly misinterpreted. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, Paul gives us a little bit of a, a better explanation of what this judgment is supposed to look like. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It's, it's plain and simple. No, we aren't supposed to just go out and judge people everywhere we go. The crazy person driving on the highway in front of you or the family in the grocery store, even the people that work at the BMV, as much as you want to judge them, you're not supposed to. But we are supposed to judge as Christians within the church. And we're not supposed to judge based on worldly standards. We're not supposed to judge based on the passions of our flesh. We are just as guilty if we do that as we would be for going out there and judging sinners by the passions of our flesh. The wrath of God is upon sinners, but the word of God is upon us, and that is what we are supposed to judge one another by. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3.16? For all scripture, all of it, has been breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter says that it is the appointed, necessary time for us to judge one another within the church based on the word of God so that we might be corrected and trained in the righteousness of Christ. So again, there is a clear distinction here. In the church, we are to judge based on the word of God and the righteousness of Jesus. But outside the church, living in the world and the passions of the flesh, you aren't judged by us. You are judged by a wrathful God that you will meet at the end of your days and you will spend eternity apart from Him because He will say, He will look in the Lamb's book of life and He will say, I never knew you. So I hope that you might ask yourself this morning, in this life, do you want to be judged by some people here in church? And do you want to get to spend eternity in harmony with God because the debt for your sins has been paid by Jesus Christ? Or do you want to spend this life suffering for the world? And when it's all said and done, you can be judged by a wrathful God and spend eternity suffering apart from Him. This, friends, is where we can find freedom in suffering. This life, as we all know, is temporary. Our suffering is is only preparing us for the glory that we will inherit when our Savior returns. But if you're not a part of that family of Christ, there is no freedom in your suffering. You're just using this life, this is just, this is just practice for that eternal suffering that you will endure apart from God. And the key word there is eternal. It doesn't end. We can't comprehend that, but I don't think we want to. So I'm going to ask the praise team to make their way up here. And I want you to ponder the title of my sermon, the, the meaning of freedom today. This is an especially important day, talking about freedom. 
Is your sole source of freedom the fact that you live in the United States of America? Friends, we live in a, in a great nation. We have many freedoms, but slowly but surely they are being stripped away from us. And that should be evidence to you right there that you're not held accountable to the White House. Your Savior is not the United States of America. It's not the government. There is only one Savior. He is King of all kings, Lord of, our, Lord of all lords. His name is Adonai, the great I Am. When all of this is said and done, you will stand before Him. And when He asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Maybe I'm a good person. I went to church. I led a Bible study. I prayed. I had faith. If your response begins like any of those with the letter I, you're wrong. It's the wrong answer. So I'm going to quote Alistair Begg to wrap things up here from a recent sermon of his called The Power and the Message of the Cross. And this might make my mom cry. It might make me cry too. He says, if we answer that question in the first person, we're immediately, we've immediately gone wrong. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he... Beg then goes on to talk about the thief on the cross next to Jesus and how everything might have gone when he stood there at the entrance to heaven and was posed that question. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? He asks of the thief. Never heard of it. Eventually, in frustration, the thief is asked, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. Let's stand and sing. Sweet I